following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You'll join me in your Bibles in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. This evening we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. In February of this year, a French newspaper reported on a scam in which victims say they were being hypnotized by a thief using a mysterious black stone. Around 30 women in Hau de France have come forward to allege what they called mental manipulation in connection with the scam. And victims are alleging that a man approached them in public And he handed them a black stone and presented himself as a sort of medium or someone with Eastern religious esoteric influences. And he began reciting mysterious phrases. One woman who was approached by the man at a bus stop said that he, quote, asked me to take off all my jewelry, everything I had in my bag, and I gave him everything. She said, I no longer had control over myself. I didn't even know what I was doing. I blacked out. My feet were stuck. I only woke up afterwards after about 15 minutes. Another woman in her 60s told a similar story. She said that the man she did not know approached her in the street, knew personal stories about her, and then handed her the black stone. She said, he was telling me stories about my life that no one knew. That is why I stayed. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have. I don't know what he did, but without realizing, I went home, got my jewelry, took out money that he asked for, and brought it all back. I was living in slow motion. It was only the morning after, when I woke up, that I realized what had happened. Now, it's been reported, it's been investigated, it's been studied, some of the police believe that perhaps the stone that was given to them was laced with something that got into their system and they were easily manipulated. But all throughout history, there's been stories like this. People have been manipulated or conned or scammed through various means, having everything taken from them. And when they realize what has happened, it's too late. I know a girl personally who put her wedding dress on sale on Craigslist for $750 after she had gotten married and someone from another country sent her a fake PayPal transaction. So she packaged up the dress and sent it overseas. And after it was gone, she realized that it wasn't a genuine transaction at all. So she not only lost the money and the dress, but the excessive shipping costs as well. Now, perhaps You, like me, get numerous scam calls and text messages throughout the week, and they obviously work because they keep doing it. It's estimated that Americans lost almost $30 billion to phone scams over the past year. Over a five-year period, the FBI reports that approximately $12 billion has been lost by high-level businesses through email scams. And on average, it costs the business over $4 million to recover what has been stolen when one of these breaches happens. Being scammed, being duped, having something stolen from you, that never feels good. Nobody likes being taken advantage of, and it's always done in a deceptive manner that takes advantage of of people's trust and goodwill. And as we get back into this letter to the Galatians and we begin chapter 3, it's here that Paul questions the Galatian Christians wondering who it is that has scammed them, who has bewitched them. He's going to ask them, who has hypnotized you to believe such madness? Now, so far, we've seen Paul reject the notion that there is more than one gospel. Remember the Judaizers, this group of men who had come to the churches in Galatia with the false gospel of Christ plus works. 
It was good and right if the Galatians wanted to believe in Christ as the Messiah they taught, but they also needed to submit themselves to the ceremonial law of God to include practices like circumcision and all of the dietary restrictions. Remember even Peter and Barnabas we saw in chapter 2 that they had been tempted to walk in a way that pleased the Judaizers, pulling themselves away from table fellowship with their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. And at the heart of what was going on was looking away from Christ, looking to the works of the flesh. Every man's assumed ability to be able to find life with God through his own works as opposed to living life with God upon the righteousness of Christ alone. They were being scammed. And this chapter is Paul's defense of the doctrine of salvation by free grace, justification by faith alone. In many ways, we can say that's pretty much the aim of the entire letter, helping believers to see the important relationship between the law and the gospel and their proper place in the life of the Christian. And right at the beginning of chapter 3, he identifies the true source of the error that's creeping into the Galatian church through these Judaizers. This wasn't a simple error of a few wayward preachers. This wasn't a small mix-up that needed some doctrinal tweaks. This was a very subtle and yet very evil assault on the truth of what God has accomplished for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were being duped. They were being bewitched. They were being hypnotized or scammed or however you want to think about that. They were being defrauded of the truth of the gospel. And this was Paul's concern. So let's read together Galatians 3 beginning in verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Amen. These are some very strong words to the Galatians from the Apostle Paul. Now at this point in the letter, Paul begins asking what one commentator calls indignant questions. Really, they're rhetorical questions to get them to think. And essentially, he's asking them all along, did you receive the benefits of the gospel by works of the law or by faith in Christ? Were those benefits a result of your meritorious efforts or by the work of the Spirit? And this is going to take up much of what Paul writes through, in fact, the remainder of the letter. And so we have two main things we're going to look at in these five verses this evening. The first one, from verses 1 through 3, is that spirit-filled living and sound doctrine are inseparably tied to one another. Now there's no doubt what Satan was up to in the city of Galatia. Through the Judaizers... He was deceiving the people of God. A few morals here, some good manners over there, a dash of good works here, and a pinch of Mosaic law over there. And all of this, of course, without the true gospel of God's free grace. It's exactly how Satan works. Enough that looks good to sneak in that which is destructive. And so Paul opens this section with this strong language. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or other translations say, who has cast a spell on you? The word bewitched means to cast an evil eye or to charm or to enchant or to deceive. And so Paul is telling the Galatians that in hearing and believing the teaching of the Judaizers, they've been influenced by something of a demonic evil origin. They're acting foolishly. 
They are lacking in all spiritual discernment. And as a result, they have an inability to see that they've been led astray by Satan, away from the truth of God, away from the gospel, and away from the righteousness of Christ. To, and to what were they led? Well, Paul says in verse 3, a belief that life with God is perfected by the flesh. This is the theology of the evil one. Notice how subtle it is. It's not that they are simply to believe in the gospel of works to save them, but that they are to believe that they are perfected by the works of the law. Remember, as we've said before, the Judaizers were saying, yes, believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, have faith in Christ, but then after you believe in Christ, you need to perfect your life by works of the flesh. So the Judaizers weren't denying the gospel, that it was a, a gift from God through Jesus Christ. They weren't denying that at all, but in their way of preaching the gospel, there was more. You see, so it's very subtle, it's pernicious, but in the end, it's very deadly. The Galatians are acting as people who have completely lost their ability to think rationally because of Satan's influence through these teachers. For the believer especially, Satan, Satan doesn't generally come to us with a grievous error that is obvious to spot. He bewitches he asks subtle questions, like one we're all very familiar with, like, did God really say? You see, none of us are exempt because this is how temptation works. Whatever the sin, Satan is out to trick us. And if we really want to indulge whatever the sin is, we simply go and there's no lack of teachers out there who will tell us it's okay. And when we encounter the charming power of temptation, when the evil one sends a messenger to, to place that black stone in our hand and ask for all of our possessions, we should remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? All temptation is a bewitchment and can bring us to spiritual folly. So Paul tells them, when we preached the gospel to you, it was so real to you that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So Paul is explaining in, that in his preaching, he, he painted word pictures and he gave them things to grasp in such a way that it is as if they were experiencing the things that he was telling them about right there in the flesh. And, and he's reminding the Galatians what the preaching of the cross accomplished among them. It was so powerful. It was so vivid that they could see and feel the power of the cross. Christ was set before their eyes as, as an image comes into their minds and through their ears. And as he preached, their hearts were seized by the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ and the sufficiency of his atonement with the only hope of deliverance being Christ himself. It was by that kind of preaching that God delivered them from their sins. And so Paul is reminding them here, remember what God did to save you. Remember how beautiful and glorious Christ was as I preached him to you. Do you want to nullify that? Are you willing to say that what Christ did was not sufficient for you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? They knew the answer to that question. Of course, we know the answer to that question. And he repeats in verse 3 what he begins with in verse 1. Are you so foolish? How, how foolish can you be? Now, a lot of people question whether or not Paul should have responded the way he did. After all, Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 to not call people fools, lest we be in danger of the hellfire. But we need to know that Paul is using a completely different word than Jesus used, so it had a completely different meaning. Jesus' point was that we should not use the word in a way of disdain or hatred. 
Paul's use of the word is only used six other times in the New Testament, and their context will give you a bit of an understanding of what he's getting at here. For example, in Titus chapter 3, in verse 3, we read, For we ourselves, including himself, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so in this, his letter to Titus, Paul is referring to various types, again, of demonic activities and influences. He's saying, we were unable to identify that we had been led astray by Satan away from God and his word and his ways. And so this is the very thing that Paul is saying here. And it's also what he says about those who are in Christ, uh, that th- those who are not in Christ when he's writing in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember, he writes there that Christians, all of us once walked following the prince of the power of the air prior to our conversion. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So when we put it all together, when we think about all of these ways that Paul is talking about those who would be deceived or bewitched by Satan, Paul is now saying here to the Galatians, have you been blinded and made foolish by Satan? Has he really bewitched you to think that you are perfected by the flesh? And he's getting at a very critical matter here. I I think we miss this a lot of times because we forget about the reality, about the fact that there are spiritual forces arrayed against us. If the gospel is what the Bible says it is, and we believe that's true, it is the power of God onto salvation that conquers Satan and has dominion over the lives of God's people. And so we forget that all of these forces are there, are continually working against us. We we simply forget. But Satan's only hope, really, and the more aware of this we are, the better off we are, but we forget that Satan's only hope is to get people to believe that the actual message of the gospel is something other than what it truly is. If you're a believer in Christ, that's really the only weapon Satan has against you, to get you to believe something other than what the gospel truly is. And that's how one can be made, in the words of Paul, foolish. That's how one is bewitched. Think about that. The only thing that Satan can ultimately do to harm the spirit-filled Christian is to convince us that the gospel is something other than what it is. That's what Paul saw in the churches in Galatia, and he was very concerned. But this goes to show us the profoundly important necessity of living life in the spirit with sound doctrine. Oftentimes, Christians opt for one or the other. So you will have some Christians who are looking for a religious experience. They want to feel something. They want to be moved emotionally. So their emphasis is on living a spirit-filled life without any kind of doctrinal foundation. They're easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine so long as it sounds good and it feels good. Others emphasize the importance of doctrine to the exclusion of experiencing any communion with God. And so they may be able to sniff out heresy and describe some finer points of theology in all of their nuances. They have massive theological libraries. They read as much as they can. They watch all of the debates online and they go to all the conferences, but they are bitter, unforgiving, cold, and harsh because their life with God is purely intellectual. But Paul provides the remedy here in verses 1 and 2. Know, understand, believe, trust in, and rest in the gospel. Get it so deeply ingrained in your heart and mind that it is as vivid as though it were happening right here before us. And... Then what? Verse 2, live by the Spirit. You see the relationship? The doctrinal truth of the gospel 
and the Spirit's application of that to our lives by faith. Those two must coexist. It's the only way that we can ever hope to keep ourselves from being bewitched. We must embrace experiential Christianity that is rooted in sound doctrine. This is why we so often commend to you the Puritans. They were so good at this. This was at the heart of their ministry. Sound doctrine that was experiential to the core. The Christian who is able to walk faithfully with a true sense of joy in their salvation and a warm, heartfelt love for Christ, his people, and all of his marvelous works of creation and redemption, while also not being swayed, is the Christian who has true communion with our triune God by knowing and trusting and loving the truth of God's word in such a way that it transforms the entire person in thought, in speech, and in behavior. The Galatians seem to have had a true experience of the Spirit. Paul doesn't deny that at all. But they are unwise. They're they're being undiscerning because the doctrine is weak, and so they are led astray by the evil one through a small nuance that they couldn't spot, or they didn't spot, or they didn't want to spot. But the nuance is deadly. We were talking this morning about, uh, in, as uh, elders were meeting together, we were talking about those who believe in, uh, in this idea that the gospel in some way is something that, that God is presenting to us and he's sort of wringing his hands and begging us to believe, but that he's not really sovereign over that work. And Pastor Paul said they, they, want to, they want to be the one in the driver's seat. Or maybe Chuck said that. I don't remember who said it. But they want to be the ones in the driver's seat. I said, yeah, we see those bumper stickers, right? Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is not my co-pilot. We're in big trouble. Jesus is driving the car. He's running the radio. He's turning on the AC. He's doing it all. And I'm in one of those old cars where you could lay down in the back window and take a nap because I know I'm secure. And if that's not the case, then I'm trying to take over. I'm trying to be perfected by works of the flesh. And so I hope we all want our hearts to be overwhelmingly full of God's grace and love and truth, aglow with his glory because we set ourselves to know all that we can know about God and about his word and about his work and I can trust him. So let's not settle for knowledge. Let's not settle for experience. We want experiential life with God founded in sound doctrine and practice. This is how we are kept from being bewitched. We cannot be feelings Christians or intellectual Christians. We must be doctrinally sound, experiential Christians. Well, Paul goes on to explain one of the devastating realities of being bewitched. We see in verses four and five, he shows us if we are depending on works of the flesh, we nullify the work of God. Paul asks, did you suffer so many things in vain? Or maybe a more accurate translation of what Paul is getting at here. Did you experience so many things in vain? And so Paul is now going to argue with the Galatians from the perspective of their own experience. What they have encountered as a result of God's works in their lives through the gospel. So the question is, did you experience so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Now, the Galatians knew firsthand, they knew the life-changing power of true Christian conversion. They had been transformed by the gospel. They heard the gospel. They received the gift of faith by God's grace. It changed their lives completely. They were new creations. They had renewed minds, and those minds were now set on the things above and not on the things of this world. They, they had all watched God work in and through them far more abundantly beyond anything they could ask or think of according to the power of the Spirit. And so Paul focuses in on the Galatians' experience with God and forces them to face the reality 
of believing the Judaizers error and what it really means. Did you experience so much for nothing? The work of God, the transforming power of the gospel, the new lives they were all experiencing, was that all in vain? If they're going to turn away from the truth and embrace the teaching of the Judaizers, they will simply be taking on a different form of the false ideas that they had before they ever heard the gospel in the first place. So what was the point of all of it? The experiences he's referring to are the things that he points to in verse five. Have you seen so many miracles? Have you enjoyed in abundance and variety the gifts of the Holy Spirit? All there to attest to the truth of the gospel? Have you experienced all of this in vain? When God gave you the spirit and worked miracles among you and in you, was it all a result of of your yielding obedience to the Judaizers law? Or was it a result of your having heard and believed the gospel? This goes back to the very same thing Paul was addressing in verse two, only slightly different. In verse two, the issue was receiving the spirit of God. And then verses four and five are pointing us to the actions that follow our having received the spirit, namely the believer's works of faith. So the issue in verse five is God's working in their midst. Paul first argued, we we saw this last time in chapter two and verse 21, that it nullifies the grace of God if we are looking to the law instead of looking to Christ and his righteousness. Remember, he said, if we can be made righteous through law keeping, then Christ died for no reason. So the issue in chapter two was salvation. It was righteousness. Now in verse five of chapter three, he's dealing with the fruits of our justification using the same argument. Is all that is done around you and in you and through you because of your law keeping? If so, all of it's in vain because it all points back to you and not to the spirit who's within you and not to Christ who has saved you and not to the father who has ordained it all to be as it is. Now, there's no doubt that the Bible teaches us again and again and again in the New Testament that true Christian faith evidences itself in actual, genuine works that honor God. There's no doubt about that. Remember, James writes in chapter 2 in verse 18, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the entire burden we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Where again and again, the the writer begins with those words, by faith. And he goes on to describe some action, some, some venture, some achievement, some accomplishment by the person in question, in reliance upon God. By faith, Noah, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham believed and obeyed when he was called. By faith, Sarah received strength and conceived, and so on. Now, this work of faith is also the fruit of the Spirit's indwelling. God supplies the Spirit by the hearing of faith, and those who receive the Spirit are empowered to accomplish good works. So this is, we could say, at the very heart of godly living. Part and parcel of our lives being transformed by Christ through the gospel, our being regenerated, results in God the Holy Spirit imparting to us the gift of faith. We just recited that in the Heidelberg Catechism. When this faith is exercised by the believer, we receive the power of the Spirit. And in this power, we accomplish the gifts, uh, excuse me, the works of faith, which is nothing other than our acting and living in a way that pleases God. It's very simple. And that sounds small, That sounds maybe even a little insignificant, but the true Christian and true Christian faith functions in this manner. The works of the law themselves alone don't involve or include gifts from God. No spiritual sight, no empowering by the spirit. Works of the law, if we're just doing works of the law, they only depend on the flesh and they are powerless efforts of our human nature. You see, so often, 
So often we, we just rely on our gifts and our talents and our abilities instead of relying upon the Spirit of God. And so if you think about that, for example, from the perspective of a preacher, you can have a preacher that's so, maybe he's wildly gifted as a communicator. And, the, and, and he's, he's so confident in his own gifts, he doesn't, he doesn't pray to the Lord, he doesn't ask for God's help, he really, he really just gets up and he says what he says and people are wowed, but the Holy Spirit isn't really doing much in the hearts of the people. They may be amazed for a moment, but there is no change, there is no transformation, there is no help to needy souls. Meanwhile, you might have a man who's not wildly gifted as a preacher, but he asks for God's help in humility and he comes before God and seeks his strength and his care over the souls of the people to whom he preaches and the Lord uses it in a way that is truly transformative. You see, works of the flesh, although we may be confident in them because we think they're doing something good for us, it is only truly the works of the spirit that are of consequence. We rest so often in what we can do. We find assurance so often in what we think we're accomplishing. At best, we're content with God's common grace. But we don't utilize or rely on the transforming day-by-day, minute-by-minute grace that God supplies to his children. But only by faith, trusting in God, and the power of his spirit at work within us do we accomplish those things that bring glory to God. All of our other efforts, Paul tells us, are in vain. They nullify the very grace of God that has been at work in our lives because we're no longer relying upon it. Now, you may hear all of this and think, that sounds good, pastor, but what does this even look like in my life? Practically, how does this look any different when I'm walking by the spirit and the grace of God, living upon the righteousness of Christ versus me living upon my own works, living upon the law and pursuing sanctification by sheer grit and determination of my own will as opposed to resting in Christ? I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. And I hate to tell you, but we're actually gonna deal with that extensively when we get to chapter five. But... And Lord willing, we'll, we'll spend a lot more time thinking about this as this goes. But in general terms, I'll say what I've said before. The difference between the two in a person's life is immense. How do I know if I'm being led by the Spirit, living by faith, instead of being led by the flesh, led by an attachment to the law? Well, we know at the very least that genuine faith produces love. Our relationships are defined by love. And in fact, love is the very thing that Jesus said would be what people see and know that we are his disciples. We have a general interaction with others that is marked by peace. One who's living by the spirit is quick to forgive, slow to anger. We believe and hope all things genuine spirit-empowered faith keeps us believing and trusting in the promises of God. We aren't always giving our white-knuckle best to get every outcome of every situation to be exactly what we think it should be, or we aren't anxious and stressed out about everything because we know that our God is in control and he does all things for our good. Genuine faith results in our meditation on the trustworthiness of God and the preciousness of God. It's our preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's our reminding ourselves of what we looked at last week, namely that Christ died for us and Christ secured us everlastingly. And the more we commune with God, true communion with God, the more that's a part of our lives, the more we will then experience a life free of guilt and anxiety and stress and bitterness and anger and regret. We'll simply rest in him. We will truly walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ. And Paul will have a lot to say about that as we move along in the letter. And so, for example, the things your spouse does that once made you bitter and angry, 
won't be a source of constant strain in your relationship anymore when you're walking more faithfully in the Spirit. Or you won't be as quick to jump all over your kids for being kids and doing childish things. You won't assume the worst about your brothers and sisters in Christ, but the best. Your feelings of jealousy will subside and you won't be as prone to look at other people's circumstances and think, what if that were me? You see, when we live upon the law, instead of living upon Christ's righteousness, we have nothing to depend on other than our own corrupt and deceptive hearts. And so there's no way we could ever have any hope that we would interact with others or see others in a light other than our demanding that everyone everywhere acknowledges and treats us and responds to us in the way that we think we deserve because we're convinced in ourselves that we're worthy of that. When we're walking in the Spirit... Instead, we will remind ourselves of the gospel and we say, Christ had to die so that I could be saved because I'm a great sinner. Of course I shouldn't expect others to treat me better. For all that I have done is in defiance and opposition to God and that is far worse than anything that someone could do to me. I don't deserve the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. How can I let someone's misspoken word or foolish action get me to respond in sin and selfishness? You see, when that is the way we start to think and that is the way we start to respond, we have a good indication that now I'm living upon the spirit instead of the law. I don't look at you and think that you owe me something. Instead, I realize that I have far more than I could ever think to ask for from my God. He's forgiven me of far more than anything anyone could ever do to me. We have to be preaching these things to ourselves, brothers and sisters. When we don't, the flesh is quick to rise up and get us depending on our own works. You see, Paul is drawing out how upside down it was that the Galatians were relying on the works of the flesh. Because not only were they transformed by God, and not only was God at work in them and through them, he was doing very clear, miraculous works all around them. The, the miracles that we see in the New Testament were divine acts of authentication. They pointed to the authenticity of the work of God and, and specifically the authenticity of Christ, either directly in his own miracles or indirectly in the signs and wonders that were wrought by those to testify of Christ, especially the apostles. So Paul could claim that the gospel he preached was authenticated by the signs of the apostles. So the authentic miracles attach only to Christ himself and to those through whom the gospel was first revealed. And as a side note, these historical miracles still serve the same purpose today. To authenticate Christ and the scriptures which declare his gospel. So there's no need for them to be repeated they have been accomplished, they have been recorded, we have them in God's word, and so we can trust that what it says is true. We don't need that continued authentication. But these signs and wonders witnessed by the Galatians had but one purpose, to confirm their faith in a Christ-centered gospel preached by Paul. In the abundance of faith, miracles are meaningless for they themselves do not persuade unregenerate men to believe. This is proven to us over and over and over again in the New Testament and particularly through the gospel, uh, through the gospels and through the book of Acts. And so we know from God's word and it's attested to us specifically here in Galatians 3 and even where I referenced earlier in Hebrews 11 that without faith, men and women can achieve nothing of value in the sight of God. And we deceive ourselves if we think we can further the kingdom of God by our own labors or our organizational abilities or our zeal alone. Unless our efforts are exercised by faith 
and empowered by the Spirit, we accomplish nothing. And this really brings it full circle, doesn't it? Because Paul not only confronts and rebukes the Galatians here, but he provides us with a sober warning. One uh, reformer commenting on this passage writes, see from this how easy it is to fall away from Christianity into Pharisaism and popery. These Galatians had performed miracles after they had accepted faith in Christ by the preaching of the gospel, and yet they easily fell away from the teaching of the gospel and embraced a doctrine of the merit of works. We need to be very careful and to walk close to God in order to be preserved in the truth of the doctrine of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, does he who provides you with the spirit do what he does around you, in you, and through you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer should be obvious to us. We receive the spirit by faith and we continue in the spirit by faith. Our experience with God testifies to those very things, and they all happen because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith is a living and active principle throughout the whole of the Christian experience. Sometimes we can talk about our, our sanctification, our being made holy as we progress through the Christian life. We can talk about it in such a way that suggests that as Christians, having begun by faith in Christ, we can complete our salvation by works. Now there's no doubt that we have important work to do in our pursuit of holiness and our being sanctified. But we must never, Never pursue a life of holiness apart from Christ who works in us. Our confession of faith summarizes the Bible's teaching on this very well. It says the principal act of saving faith has immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. In other words, we believe in Christ not only to be brought into the light from the darkness, not just for our justification and being adopted as sons and daughters of God, as great as that is, but we also believe in Christ for our sanctification. We also believe in Christ to see us through the rest of our lives on this earth day by day by day into our glorification. We are to depend on the Spirit that is for us in all of our growth in grace. It is never a white-knuckled effort on our part. The Spirit is working in us. The Spirit is applying to us the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in order that we might die to sin and become all the more like Christ. So faith acting on Christ is the instrument, not only of our justification, but also our sanctification. But the role of faith in our lives, it's not passive. We are to work out our salvation. I had an old pastor tell me once, it's not as though you can ever obey God too much. Right? That, that's certainly a part of our, our, our sanctification, that we're obeying God. We're walking in all of his ways. We're to be diligent. Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But faith responds to this by doing all that God has commanded while looking to Christ and knowing I can only do these things by faith. I can only do these things because I'm empowered by the Spirit. I can only do these things because Christ is with me and Christ is for me. And so whatever we do and however we do it, we must always keep in mind and continue to preach to ourselves, this is the work of God in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Anything else is my own effort, and it is useless. So if we're to put together all that Paul has written in these five verses in the broader context, it goes something like this. Remember how you came to Christ in the first place. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. Never forget the day of your salvation. Paul's saying, Barnabas and I came to Galatia. We preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You heard our words. You believed the message. And God poured out his Holy Spirit among you in a very real and a very dramatic way. And the evidence of his presence, the evidence of his power was unmistakable. 
Moreover, none of this was conditioned on your acceptance of circumstances, of your obedience to the law. You have begun in the spirit. Now don't turn back to the flesh. Don't blow it all up by following these false teachers who by the power and influence of Satan himself are trying to seduce you away from Christ and to a counterfeit gospel. Don't do it. And brothers and sisters, I hope from all of this we can see two very important things. First, the importance of rightly experiencing God through spirit-filled lives founded upon sound doctrine. True experiential communion with God must be founded in sound doctrine or else it's false communion. And secondly, we must realize that dependence upon the flesh for all that we do in this life nullifies the work of God and turns all the attention and efforts on ourselves. It doesn't glorify God when we have faith, but it produces no works of faith. We can learn from the folly of the Galatians. Our Christian lives must continue in exactly the same way that they began. How did we receive the Holy Spirit? Like the Galatians, not as a reward for our obedience, but rather as a gift from God when we believed. And it's on this same footing of grace and faith that we are to enjoy his ongoing ministry in our lives. This is never something that is earned. We do not perform acts of obedience to God's law as a reward for the obedience or to secure the Spirit's powerful influence. Like Paul, and he told us in chapter 2 and verse 20, we are to live by faith in the Son of God, looking to Him and depending upon Him day by day for everything we need, whether it be forgiveness, justifying righteousness, or the work of the Spirit to make us holy as we become more and more like Christ. Now, friends, some of you here tonight do not look to Christ in this way. You don't look to Christ in any way. You don't look to Christ as the author and finisher of your faith because you have no faith in him whatsoever. Truth be told, you have faith, but your faith is in your own works. Your faith is in that which you accomplish with your own hands, with the dependence upon the sufficiency of your own flesh. But the Apostle Paul, he was writing to the Corinthians and he said of his works, I can give all that I have. I can even give my body to be burned. But if I have not love, I give nothing. In other words, if his life is not marked by a genuine love from God that comes into his life and works through his life by faith in God, it's all worthless. It's all vain effort. And the Bible tells us that all of our works that are accomplished apart from faith in Christ are to him like filthy rags. Look that up sometime. It's a, it's a disgusting description. And this is how God sees our works apart from faith, as filthy rags. Now, friend, you may be the most generous giving person in the world, but unless you repent of your self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and turn to Christ, you will die in your sins and go to hell. And so I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way of true salvation, the only hope we have to live. Jesus tells us in his word that his burden isn't the great weight of law that we put on ourselves so that we try to earn God's favor. No, Jesus' burden is light. His yoke is easy. We don't have to earn anything. It's already been earned for us. So will you turn to Jesus? Will you trust in him? Because Jesus alone can save you. And in him alone can you receive not a heavy weight on your shoulders, but a light and easy yoke that will see you through to the end of this life into glory. Brothers and sisters, by faith, May it be said of us that we all look to Jesus alone for all that we desire as we live our lives in communion with God. A true, solid faith upon sound doctrine in true communion experientially with our God, trusting in him day by day and not looking to the works of our own flesh because Jesus truly is enough. He doesn't need us but he holds us and he keeps us. And that, brothers and sisters, 
is a wonderful, reassuring, and faithful truth. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness and for your instruction. Lord, it's so easy for us to look in our lives and to seek to earn something. Everything else about our lives is about earning. Earning our living, earning respect, earning a place in this world. And so, Lord, it seems so foreign to our natural way of life to come before you and realize there's nothing for us to earn. That Christ has done it all for us. And even more unnatural to us in our flesh is to rest in that reality. To rest upon the great truth that Christ is enough. And that I can come before you and I can look to your word and I can, by the power of the spirit in me, I can actually obey your word, not to keep you loving me. I don't need that. You will love us to the end of the age. Lord, I I don't need to obey. We don't need to obey and look to your law and seek to fulfill it all by by a a white-knuckled hold on everything that we're seeking to do to impress you, Lord, because Christ is enough. Help us, God. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust that and help us to live in that reality. Lord, we want to have strong faith that is rooted in sound doctrine, but that is lived out experientially from a warmth of heart, with love, with, with patience, with humility, with a lack of pride, with a lack of arrogance, with a lack of self-assurance. Lord, help us to live not upon our own fleshly abilities and gifts and works and help us to remember that anything we can do that is of any worth whatsoever will be done in the name of Christ, will be done by faith, and is done only because you have allowed us to do it. And so we pray, O God, that you help us to preach that truth to ourselves day by day, that we not be bewitched, that we not be deceived, that we not be brought in by the cunning and crafty lives of the, lies of the evil one, but that we rest in the one who gave himself for us, that we might truly live in the freedom that is ours to enjoy forever and ever. And we ask you to do all of this in the powerful, mighty, and all-sufficient name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.